Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The political logic underpinning this policy is inherently brutal. And that is, you know, the more painful the penalty, the more effective the policy. Under this policy, it suddenly becomes acceptable, if not necessary, and inevitable to expel a small child to Nauru. Hello, lovely people. Welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, the host, and I am political editor of Guardian Australia. This week, it's my absolute pleasure to be having a conversation with David Mann, who lives in Melbourne and will be locked down, poor old David, uh, at this point in time. He is the Executive Director of Refugee Legal. And the reason we're having this conversation this week is that we're sort of around about the time of an anniversary that I don't like to dwell on, but I think it's very important that we continue to talk about. And that is the anniversary of the reappearance of offshore detention in the Australian political landscape. And look, I think because people are very caught up naturally and purposefully in getting through this crisis that we're living through, this this public health crisis, issues like offshore detention can take a bit of a backseat. So I just wanted to give some oxygen basically to this conversation with David, who is an expert in this field and has a long history. So David, why don't we start there, given I've said history, <laughs> why don't we bring the listeners up to speed with how and why offshore detention reappeared in Australia's political landscape? Yeah, well, look, it reappeared in 2012 and um, it was really, in a way, I think, driven by the resumption of the deterrence agenda in relation to the approach to refugees in Australia and um, particularly those coming by boat. And what we saw, of course, there was an attempt by the government of the day, the Gillard government, to come up with a plan when boats had started coming again to Australia um, in what the government considered to be significant numbers, and I think the public did too, and I think that it was in that context that the first attempt was to by uh, the government was to come up with a, a swap deal, a refugee swap deal with Malaysia, the, the so-called Malaysian solution, and um, as I um, can attest to very much so, uh, Catherine, having led the, uh, the challenge uh, yes. for people um, who were going to be expelled to Malaysia, uh, the High Court, by a majority of six to one, uh, found that the proposal to expel people who'd arrived in Australia by boat seeking asylum to Malaysia uh, was unlawful. Mm. And then after a year of um, huge political conflict and battle within Parliament to um, legislate to circumvent that ruling, eventually 
Parliament passed laws which effectively stripped bare the protections which the High Court had ruled on and therefore opened the path, that dark path again, to Nauru and to Manus and to the mm. effectively the forced transfer of people seeking asylum by boat to those places. As you said, the re-emergence of the regime occurred during the period of the, of the Gillard and Rudd governments and it reflected, as you've referenced, a perception that they were battling that there were many, many boat arrivals, too many, needed a solution, needed a cut through. But then we went through another period after that, didn't we, David, when Tony Abbott was elected, then we were in the turnbacks period that sort of supplemented the offshore detention regime and we had Operation Sovereign Borders and, and that phase of proceedings. So that's how we got here. Now let's delve into what here is, right? Where are we with all of that? So just quoting Human Rights Watch and their figures, they say that more than 3,000 people have been transferred offshore since 2013 to uh, Nauru or Manus. What's happened to those people? Well, I think the starting point is that um, around 1,400 of those people still remain in terrible limbo, either offshore in Nauru or in PNG or for the majority, actually in Australia now. Uh, So just in terms of numbers, just as a summary, there are still around 230 people held on Nauru and in Papua New Guinea Mm -hmm. right now. In Australia, the remaining people are in Australia. There are about 1,000 people in Australia in the community on, on bridging visas in limbo, and there are around 140 people who are locked up in Australia, Mm. in indefinite detention. Now, the people that have been brought back to Australia, almost all of those people have been brought back at various points uh, because they have become so unwell that they've been in urgent and critical need of medical assistance and medical care that they simply could not get offshore where they were held. So one extraordinary aspect of this is that the policy has resulted in harming people so severely, causing such deep Um, destruction to people, that the vast majority of those remaining have been brought back to Australia under necessity for for urgent medical care. Mm. And when you say in limbo, I know what you mean, David, but explain to the listeners what you mean by in limbo. These people are in limbo in Australia. Well, they're in limbo, and and this goes back to another issue to do with the history that you you asked about, and I think this is a pretty pretty important um, and fundamental aspect of the predicament right now, and that is that when the government resumed offshore detention, offshore processing, it's sometimes called, the first part of that was to send people to Nauru and to PNG. But those people who were originally sent were then um, ultimately brought back to Australia as part of the second step in the resumption of this policy, and that was the next part, which was um, announced by the Labor government, um, which was that anyone who arrived from 19 July 2013 uh, would never be allowed to resettle in Australia. So this was the second part of the policy. It was called the no-chance policy, a permanent ban on anyone who arrived by boat being permanently resettled. And then as a result of that policy, from July 2013 until December 2014, we had almost 3,000 people, um, slightly less than that, sent to, uh, to Manus and Nauru. Now, it's these people that we're talking about um, who've been caught up in this. That limbo that we're talking about means that although they've been brought back to Australia, there is a permanent ban on them ever settling here. 
which means they remain in this complete um, legal limbo in their lives without any certainty as their future, with the Australian government saying, your future will not be here. Um, it has to be elsewhere in another country. And and that means, in essence, that people's temporary protection is rolled over. This group don't even have temporary protection. These, the, the, this group that I'm talking about are actually in a, in a whole different universe. Um, they are literally, if you like, here, but um, segregated or, or banned from ever even applying for protection in Australia, despite the fact that the vast majority of people have been assessed as refugees. And so the people that you're talking about, the other people, and this is um, another consequence of the policy, is you're, you're, what you're referring to is roughly the 31,000 people who weren't sent to Nauru or to PNG for one simple reason, really, I think at the end of the day, that while the policy um, mandated that they should be sent offshore, very quickly the capacity of the two countries, Nauru and PNG, to take people was outstripped so that there was no room. Um, no space, yes. so they remain in Australia. Those people, that 31,000, if you like, um, out of that 31,000, they have been able to apply for protection, left in limbo for years and then ultimately able to apply for protection and have been going through the process to either uh, be granted a TPV, a temporary protection visa, or, or a, a SHEV, which is like a five-year temporary protection visa. Yes, yes. And obviously uh, time is an elastic concept in a pandemic. I was just about to say, oh, was it 12 months ago we were talking about Medivac? I'm not sure exactly when we were talking about Medivac, not that long ago. Obviously there was a period where the crossbench were able to uh, set up a set of procedures for the medical evacuations that you referenced earlier in terms of those people being brought back to Australia for medical treatment. Then uh, obviously the numbers in the parliament changed and so did the policy. So are people who are still on Nauru and PNG, people who have not been resettled in America, because that's one destination that some of these folks have ended up in, are people still coming back into the country for medical treatment as as we speak or where is all of that up to? Since the repeal of the Medivac legislation, there have been some people who have been Medivac'd, yes. Ultimately, the fate of the remaining people in Nauru and in PNG is resettlement elsewhere or potentially return to their home country, um, which presents another real danger. Um, because critical to this whole policy of there being no chance of settlement is also looking at what are the other options, what are the other alternatives. And the main one which has existed has been the part of the US deal. So out of the people that we've talked about, there are around about a 1,000 people now who've been resettled to the US. And um, our understanding is that there are remaining 250 places which are still available and there's sort of a last push now to see whether anyone offshore or onshore even out of the, the, those that are in limbo are wanting to take up that offer um, mm -hmm. in the near future. And the reality is at the moment, due to this policy, that is the main option for people uh, either in Australia or offshore. And are people in Australia contemplating becoming that last 250? Is, is that happening now? Um, look, I think so. I think some are and some are not, and I think it's really mixed. Um, our experience has been, together with others, um, other partners in the sector, is that uh, it's a very mixed response to, to that. Um, you know, that response is uh, due to a whole range of different factors. I mean, for some people, they've become so crushed by the experience that they've found it very difficult to contemplate going somewhere else. I think that, mm. you know, that the 
that the level of psychological and physical damage has been so severe that it actually has really um, impaired um, the ability to make those kinds of, of huge decisions. I also think, frankly, um, you know, I, I don't think we can discount the impact of the Trump era. The question of whether one would, um, you know, what one might make of resettlement to the US um, while Trump was president. I mean, that's mm. uh, what I'm stating here as fact in terms of some of the, what we've picked up. There are a range of, a whole range of factors. Another one was the potential to be split from family, separated yes. once again from family. So there's a range of factors. Look, yes. Catherine, the other, the only other option, which has been extremely limited, there's been a small amount of resettlement to some European countries and also to Canada, and so, but in very small amounts. But the big question, which is um, still remains unanswered, is what the government are going to do with this years-long standing offer by New Zealand. Yes, well, that, that was. Thank you for anticipating that. That was exactly the next question. So the resettlement offer from New Zealand, as you say, is incredibly long-standing. It, it appears in view. <laughs> and Peter Dutton, when he was the Home Affairs Minister, would periodically sound like something might happen, uh, but then nothing seemed to happen. So w- where is that up to, do you think? It remains very unclear. I think it, it remains unclear. It's not off the table. Um, as far as we understand. I think that uh, it is an option uh, that's been on the table. I think it's fair to characterise it like this, that um, for a number of years, the government's blocking of that option, not only rejection, but sort of active blocking of it, um, was um, for two stated reasons. One was because they saw this as potentially a sort of a notch in the edifice of the uh, border protection policy that somehow that it could result in if people were resettled to New Zealand in an armada of boats descending on our country again. Um, uh, so there was that stated concern, which um, doesn't stack up in, in light of the evidence and sort of logic, if you like. The other issue was um, that um, seemed to come into play at some point was a concern that if the New Zealand option was, was invoked, that somehow that might take the foot off the pedal of the US resettlement option. In other words, people may not take up that option and instead look to the alternative of New Zealand, which was not not the, the state of policy of the government. The government has been very keen to exhaust uh, the numbers under the US deal. Yes. What, what don't we do, hit pause for a sec now and just think about Australia's policy of deterrence, what that is and what that means. But also, I just want to take take a big step back just for a sec, right? Because during the pandemic, obviously we've had the international border closed, we've had state border closures. Uh, That sort of fortress Australia mentality has been very much to the fore. We've had this sort of strange event that sort of uh, thrust us back into sort of pre-Federation times periodically, which has sort of been an interesting thing to live through. But This preamble is just me saying that it has been politically popular to close the border, to close state borders, even though people are practically inconvenienced. And this is me sort of setting up a broader conversation about deterrence, I guess. For people listening to this podcast who would have uh, no sympathy with uh, people who arrive or attempt to arrive in Australia by boat, right, Um, who would think to themselves sovereignty is important, borders are important, uh, order is important. How would you, uh, you know, and who may support the deterrence regime on those principles, 
What would you say to those people? In terms of understanding the approach of this policy, which has wrought devastating harm um, and has only violated rights but endangered lives and destroyed lives, amongst the various explanations for what lies at the root of it, I think that one of them is um, deterrence policy, the deterrence agenda, we we'll call it. Um, and um, this is, you know, really deterrence of people um, seeking asylum by boat. And, you know, stop the boats um, became the sort of political war cry, if you like, in, mm -hmm. in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, going back to your reference to the Abbott government and, and um, yeah, the, the political logic, I think we look, need to look at dead in the eye. The political logic underpinning this policy is inherently brutal. And that is, you know, the more painful the penalty the more effective the policy. Catherine, this is why it, it, this policy, under this policy, it suddenly becomes acceptable, um, if not necessary, um, and inevitable to expel a small child to Nauru, you know, to inevitable abuse uh, in order to deter another person from coming. So, you know, refugees become human shields um, and conscious and calculated cruelty um, has become, under this policy, not only justified, but I think it's been seen as a necessity. There's an element of performance in the policy. It's a strange mix, isn't it, um, Australian detention policy, because at, at one level the offshore detention regime has persisted because it's out of sight, but at another level the whole apparatus around expressions of sovereignty through this policy are designed to to be performative to uh, you know to 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 announce themselves i guess so uh, you know anyway uh, sorry my dear this is this is your conversation not mine but i'm i'm just trying to decant these points properly no absolutely um it is absolutely performative but it's done in you know, sort of in the sense of it's purportedly in the name of stopping the boats or protecting our borders, as you've just referred to, or or breaking the business models of, of people smugglers, or even saving lives at sea. And you know, I think that one of the one of the critical aspects of the narrative, the political narrative, has become somehow um, sort of um, taking on the, the the humanitarian high ground. And so, you know, really with the revival of the policy in 2012, the Pacific Solution Policy, it was actually partly justified um, by, well, let's let's call it performative humanitarian concerns, um, that something needed to be done about the tragic loss of, of, yes, of, lives, of, of lives at sea. And, um, and look, I, I, Catherine, I, some, some people were no doubt motivated by genuine concern about that, but from others, I, I, it appeared to me at least disingenuous, particularly from those who, who um, had... Uh, There'd been no um, obvious uh, history of um, such uh, driving humanitarian impulse, um, and um, far from it. And you know, many professed yes to be motivated by saving lives at sea, while promoting a system which was destroying lives on land. For me, you know, I think you know when when the camps on the Rue and Manus Island reopened, uh, crocodile tears flooded the floors of Parliament. Ah. Uh. Yes, uh, it, I mean I know the answer to this question. It's sort of it, it's sort of silly to even pose it because you know I know I know what you'll say. Are you concerned? We've we've seen some stirrings internationally of some other jurisdictions wanting to copy the Australian model. Are you surprised by that? Are you concerned by that? Do you think it'll happen? 
And I have to say that um, for some years um, th- there, there were growing concerns about the powerful, the potent, the dark export value um, of these um, and potential, if you like, of, the, of this policy. For many years, I have to say, you know, those in Geneva in sort of senior positions in the UN, UN, UN Refugee Agency and other agencies were hopeful that it wouldn't take hold internationally and that somehow this was a sort of a, a peculiar and sort of parochial um, policy of Australia's and that it was some, somehow seen like that by the rest of the world. I'm afraid to say that's not so. And in recent years, there's been growing interest in what has been seen by quite a number of countries in the context of, you know, the pervasive um, erection of fences and, and bolstering of borders globally. Um, there's been a great interest in this policy and indeed a growing sort of sense that it's a successful policy um, and one that ought to be looked at very closely for replication. Before, when I was sort of setting up or trying to look at this issue a little through the lens of the pandemic and some of the impulses and and, and things that have been politically potent during the pandemic. It's I sort of presented that through an Australian lens, I guess, because there is that idea of Australia as an island at the bottom of the world, uh, you know, sort of having that deeply ingrained sense of vulnerability to invasion or, or whatever else, right? This is sort of seen as a territorial anxiety. You know, that's seen as a very Australian uh, condition, but it's sort of in terms of that export point that you make, uh, obviously since the global financial crisis and then the subsequent economic depression that followed everywhere, pretty much everywhere except here, and now this second crisis has sort of sparked this uh, resurgence of populism, of uh, of fixation on borders and barriers. So uh, I guess it is unsurprising that we would export these ideas in the current climate. So given you and I have hit the inevitable nadir in this conversation, let's try and yank ourselves back to whether or not there are any, uh, there's any hope of uh, trying to turn sentiment around, turn this policy around locally and or globally, and uh, whether or not the people who are basically protagonists within it, locked within it forever, uh, whether, whether or not there is any hope for these people. Well, look, Catherine, I I, um, um, I always look for hope. I incline toward hope, and but I also think we've got to do it clear in you know, clear in a clear-eyed way. And I think that the starting point is really go back to just what you were referring to before, which is the, the reality of the world at the moment, um, not just Australia, but the the, the global situation, and um, and also for us as, as a country to lift beyond, I think, one of the things that we're so mighty in on refugee policy, and that is a, a sort of narrow, inward-looking parochialism, um, you know, and where we can somehow, and I think we've seen this with COVID too, um, is where, where we can somehow shut the door on the world for, for a while, you know, mm-hmm. whenever it suits us, or, or if you like, press pause on the button of the Refugees Convention, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I think we need to think globally, and I think you... you as you've said, I think that, that the reality is that the global pushback of people fleeing persecution is only escalating. Um, mm-hmm. It's hit unprecedented levels. And there is a fearsome gale blowing in the direction of, of conservatism, of ultranationalism, of nativism, of xenophobia, of anti-immigration and populist um, sentiment and racism. 
globally. That's a reality. And um, there are now, um, the latest report from the UN Refugee Agency is an unprecedented 82.4 million people were forced from their homes last year. And, you know, we, we are, you know, in the face of one of history's greatest eras of forced displacement and humanitarian needs. So I think that, you know, and, and amidst the ravages of, you know, the, the, of climate change and, 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 you know, the proliferation of fires and floods and droughts and food, now COVID, you know. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty frightening picture in many ways, uh, I think, and we have to look at that for what it is. Um, and many countries, as I mentioned, have responded and continue to, not just Australia, by bolstering borders, erecting fences and building more walls to shut desperate people out. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the... So where's the hope is the question that you're, you're asking. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm scrabbling for it. There's got to be some hope here. So let, let me throw you this. Right, this 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 may be uh, this may not be um, this may not be in any shape or form a harbinger a harbinger of hope. But it was interesting to me that uh, there there was such a there was such a buy in recently uh, community buy in with this family from Biloela. Um, so do you think hope? lives in uh, applying a human face uh, to a set of propositions that are generally abstract, right, that are generally part of that, well, people we don't see and the performative stuff that happens is is sort of uh, institutional rather than human, if that makes sense. Is the hope is the hope in the humanity, I guess? I don't know. Well, I, I, think, I, I think the greatest... Um I think the greatest way to challenge inhumanity is our own humanity. Absolutely. I think it resides in our own humanity. And I think with the Billa Wheeler family, I think we saw an ancient story. It's not a new story. It's not an Australian story. It's an ancient story um, which crosses all cultures across the globe. And that is that when um, people get to know of and see the face of people and the consequence, the human consequences and the stories and get to know each other, um, it's absolutely transformative. And that's why, um, uh, uh, you know, who could be surprised by governments in this country um, exiling people out of sight, out of mind and out of rights? Because then the, the whole, whole idea there is to keep people out of sight so that we can't see the consequences of these kinds of policies where people, where, which effectively are trying to stop others, have no regard to the actual people who are ensnared in it. It's about stopping others coming and replicating, you know, the same kinds of inhumanity they fled from or worse to stop others coming. So I think that absolutely part of the hope lies in that. But can I say, I think that we've got to ask the question here, how do we bring this chapter to a close? Yes. And how do we avoid a recurrence? And, uh, and, for that, and how so that it doesn't happen again, um, and how we write a new chapter in our history. And I think that part of part of what we've got to do is, firstly, um, and this is not just a, a, an Australia issue. This is not just domestic. It's also broader. But how do we build a better international response? And it's got to start with, I think, stopping further erosion of protection and mitigation, and that includes the people who are in limbo that we've just talked about. It also needs to be about regaining ground lost, and the third is to build a better protection system and strengthen it. But I think um, we have to also recognise that COVID has set up some additional challenges in that on that front. So we have a set of frameworks, if you like, internationally. We've got the Refugees Convention and legal other legal frameworks, but they require will and, they, and the opportunity and, you know, capacity um, to be realised. And 
I think there, there lies in the great challenges. And I, I think that the first step has to be in Australia with this issue and where hope must lie is, um, and, and what, what the, the, the great challenge for us who care about this is to start with the plight of the 1,400 people that we talked about and um, doing all that is possible to ensure that there are viable alternatives and options to alleviate their suffering and to deliver to them enduring protection and resettlement, whether in Australia or, as is likely, potentially offshore somewhere else, like the US or elsewhere. Um, but that has to be at the front because that is in front of us too. There is a proximity here, I think, that is so mm. important. That goes to your issue about the Wheeler Wheeler family and hope that there is something, I think, in sort of, if you like, the ethics of proximity here, you know, that the, you know, that we, we should be compelled by those who are in our midst with us and, and doing something about their plight. You know, um, um, yes, there's 82 million who've been forced from their homes. That's a pretty overwhelming, um, that's a pretty overwhelming proposition in terms of, you know, a challenge, but there are challenges that come from that that are local. And I think we have to act local and, uh, and do something on that front. I think the other thing that we need in, in, in terms of what is an immensely complex area in challenging policy, you know, immigration policy, immensely complex and challenging where there are no magic bullets, is to, for Australia, to develop a plan for refugees that has human dignity and humanitarian outcomes at, at its heart. Yes, it needs to meet legal obligations, but actually what is perhaps most fundamental about that is not just the legal obligations themselves, but obligations which are underpinned by fundamental principles of humanity. Mm. Um, and that at its heart is about not people who are fleeing from harm seeking help, not exposing them to further harm, but instead treating people humanely, fairly processing them, and if they're found to be assessed to be in need of protection, uh, to grant enduring protection and settlement. Um, and uh, I think that that has to be a first step, but I also, a, a critical step, but I think the first step is to end the limbo and the indefinite suffering without end um, uh, for those who have, been, have endured so much suffering under this policy. And can you see either political party uh, in terms of the major parties, the, the parties that form government uh, in Australia, can you see either of the political parties rising to that challenge? I, I think that's, a, that's a, a, a difficult question at the moment. I don't see any strong commitment by either party um, to sort of act in a transformative or fundamental way in terms of change. Um, there are some differences between them. Um, but I also think that there is some reason for hope in the sense of there is still some progress being made bit by bit. It's very incremental. It's far too slow. Um, it's causing ongoing... It's lots of like... It, it's causing um, a slow-motion destruction of people, continues to. But within that, for example, I'll give you a concrete example, people are still being resettled to the US. Mm -hmm. um, um, the government hasn't taken off the table New Zealand... Um, it is actually on the t it is on the table um, when we don't know, so it's not it hasn't hit a point a complete dead end, and also people are um, in this country um, still many people are still in, in Australia and are being supported um, through the the ongoing ordeal. Um, can I see an immediate fix to all of this? Um, I don't think there is any commitment to an immediate fix. 
But it's also fair to say, I think, at the moment that the deterrence policy, in a way, um, has sort of turned inward. It's devoid of any regard for the purpose and the people in Snedda. It's lost a connection with its sort of original purpose. Mm. And possibly some of, at times, you, you know, one wonders whether um, some of the heat has gone out of it. It's difficult to, to see, but I certainly think that in recent times um, there's some reason to believe that also the public, um, you know, with the Billa Wheeler family, for example, that there is a, a growth of public sentiment um, looking for alternatives, for humane alternatives. Mm. And let's let's just end here. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, before, because I know for a lot of people listening to this conversation, they will find it really distressing and they will feel uh, quite powerless, uh, notwithstanding both of our very sterling efforts to sincerely point in the direction of hope. And I agree with what you've said in terms of your broad diagnostic. But um, what would you, for, for people who are listening to this podcast who would like to do something practical to support people in limbo in the community, uh, I'm not talking about political action, I'm just talking about practical action, where would you direct those people? Well, can I, can I say, I know you've asked for practical, but can I start with something? And that is that, I, you know, a, a, a call here to, to for us to all... Um, you know, sort of recall um, what history tells us about change, and that is that change is actually inevitable, um, uh, but it's not it's not a supernatural force, if you like. Um, some of the most fundamental change in societies, you know, the abolition of slavery and of apartheid, and 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 on we go. Yeah, the the right to vote for a significant part of <laughs> yes. Oh God, yes. No, no. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just I'm just taking it as a given uh, that that people people know how to exercise uh, political lobbying and political judgments and their political rights. I'm I'm certain uh, there would be lots of people listening. Uh, who would would already be lobbying their local member about uh, about these policies and and maybe encouraged by this conversation to do so? I just mean uh, in in the world of in the world of the practical, uh, there'll there'll be people who have discovered possibly for the first time in this conversation that there's a bunch of people in Australia sitting there in limbo who are in uh, who are in not a great mental state who would who would I, I know this sounds potentially twee and there's not how I mean it, but might want to donate food, might want to, uh, might want to be engaged in some sort of a, a welcoming community outreach. Totally got your point. I just wanted to emphasise the fact that we that we need to do something, and we can do something. That's where I was leading um, to. It was that because change comes, whether it be through um, acts of kindness, individual acts of kindness, um, or, or more broadly, it comes through, of course our will, our, our will for change and, um, and also political will. But I think that, you know, the thing that I, I, I sent, from, from my point of view, the thing that has mattered most over time is giving people time and, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's just giving what you can what, in terms of time or, or help. It's lending a helping hand, giving time. But if I could put it this way, being with someone or being, mm-hmm. being with people who are suffering um, is one of the most um, powerful acts itself. Um, I mean, I I often say do something. Um, Yes, you can write to your local member, all the other things that you were mentioning, but there are many people in our community at the moment who were brought back um, who um, are connecting with communities in Australia, um, are connecting with individuals, 
And I'd strongly urge that that, that may be the starting point is to link him mm. with networks uh, mm. where help is being, you know, and just, just where there is a, a sense of um, connection and community, uh, um, yeah, becoming involved in, in whatever way. Yes, exactly. Well, let's let's uh, we could go on as people can hear, but let's end on that note. Uh, just uh, people connecting to other humans and uh, the importance of that, both as a as an act of decency and as a down payment in social change. David, thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show and having this conversation. Uh, you are on social media. If this conversation has uh, raised qu- uh, questions that I didn't broach, that listeners might want to put to you, you're very easy to track down on social media. Uh, I just want to thank Alison Chan, who's producing us this week. Uh, I want to thank Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of the show. I want to thank you guys for listening. You know the drill. Uh, rate, review, tell your friends, etc. Spread the word. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.